The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, guys, I invite your attention, if you have your Bible this morning, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll be looking at a very familiar passage today. And today's sermon title is called The Wonderful Names of God. The Wonderful Names of God. And uh, as you have opportunity, I also call your attention, you've probably already seen it, on the back of your uh, lyric sheet should be a little picture. And on that picture is something I want to talk to you about. As I put this on my Facebook the other day, and oh boy, you would have thought we uh, killed Grandma's cow before Grandma wanted to kill her cow, so to speak. It was just one of those things. This picture, if you look closely at it, it says something. It says, I'm 100% for mandatory, and your mind goes to vaccines. This is not a topic about COVID, I promise you. Look a little closer. What does the word actually say? It says vacations. It does not say vaccines, and I'm neither pro nor con. I'm a pastor. I don't know health. I just know enough to get this. But when I posted this on Facebook, I kid you not, within a few minutes, people I hadn't talked to in years flooded me and said, I can't believe you're one of those people. I thought you loved, I mean, you, it was, it was crazy. And I said, you need to get your eyes checked. Because if you look a little bit closer, and I'm looking at one of them in the back, John Moody, one of our Bible teachers here, had a little bit of a moment for this too. Some of y'all did. And, and it really brings into light, your mind wants to think things are as they are when reality on the page is a little bit different. Did you see that? If you're for 100% vacations, would you just raise your hand? I think most of y'all are going to be okay with that. It's an okay thing. But I bring this illustration up because I want you to know this is exactly how Israel felt when they were given this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is, is something we take for granted. It, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We hear these words all the time. But for Israel at the time, they were struggling because in their day, their whole life was being turned upside down. The Assyrian army had come in and ravaged the area. They had literally pillaged. They had literally taken people away. They literally killed. It was a terrible scene. And yet they wanted hope. And so here was a prophecy of hope. But it wasn't the hope they expected it to be. When Jesus came to this earth, as you well know, the perception of Jesus was different from the reality of Jesus, just as it was for your mandatory vacations versus your mandatory vaccines on that picture. If you're still trying to figure out the picture, talk to me after church, all right? And we'll, get, we'll figure it out together. But the perception is not always reality. And these folks, as we need to be reminded, need to know that God often works in ways that are not our own. In fact, he tells us that our ways, his ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And so as they looked at their situation in 725, 722 BC, before they were literally taken away, the northern kingdom of Israel, they looked around and said, God, I think you're going to take away this army right now. And yet that's not what happened. It was some 700-ish years later before Jesus actually came on the scene. And as we come to this passage, the gloom of verse 1 we're going to read is going to be rejoicing in verse 3. The distress of verse 1 will be joy of verse 3. The darkness of verse 2 will be light of verse 2. And the shadow of death of verse 2 will become the overcoming in verse 6. And so 
Friend, I just got to ask you, have you allowed the culture to define for you how you are to view the things of God? Have you allowed the culture to define for you how you view the things of God and by extension, how you're to live out for God in these days that we have before us? Perception is not always reality. And so this morning, I want you to ponder his name. That's our big idea today. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, for each one of them is worth a lifetime of meditation. We're going to see three things today. We're going to see that God is astounding in the way he came. He's awesome in the way he administrates, and he's amazing in the tomorrows he authorizes. We'll look at those one by one through the text. We're going to start reading in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to focus our study, though, on verses 6 and 7. So if you have your Bible, let's read together Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Hear the words of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her, speaking of Israel, who was in anguish. In the former time, he was brought into contempt uh, in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made the glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordans and Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people walked in darkness and have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the deep of darkness, on them has a light shined. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. But verse 6, for to us or unto us a child is born, as to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. For on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord will do these things or will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray today as we study this familiar passage and look at the reality of what it says, not the perception of what many have thought it to be. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you and we ponder your names this morning, Lord, the names given to your son, Father, we, we just rejoice again. We know this, this season is still so commercialized. It's so overdone with things, Lord, that are of this world. And that's not necessarily sinful. But Father, especially as Christians, though, it can drag us further away from the reality that is before us that every moment of every day, and even especially during this time, it is to be about the Son given to us. So, Father, give us wisdom this morning. Speak to hearts that know you. Speak to hearts that don't know you. And draw us all closer to you, especially for those without Christ, to know salvation in Christ. Father, we pray this today in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Well, I want you to see there in verse 6 that God is astounding in the manner in which he arrived. This is God's Messiah. This was the, the king that comes now with four titles or four names. And yet there is something particularly marvelous and majestic in how he comes. He, the fact that he came is amazing, but the way he comes is even more amazing. You see in verse 6 there that it says, For unto us, if you have your King James, for unto us, or in more modern translation, for a child is born unto us. The child occurs for weight of what it says. It's a, it's a prophetic thing. Now, it's been long said that the, the issue here is not that the child is coming, but who is this child? Who is this one that is coming? And so the issue is, is that a new day has come, a wonderful day has come, 
A king with four names is born unto us, and we know his name is none other than Jesus Christ. That's who it is. No more, no less. This speaks of his earthly beginning. A child is born speaks of he's a baby in Bethlehem. And it's unto us, it's for us, it's for our good. Isn't that what Romans 8.28, many of you have memorized, says? That, that all things work together for the what? The good of those who love us? Well, here it is. A child is born. Hebrews 2.14 affirms that inasmuch as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Christ, likewise shared in the same. Or Paul in Galatians 4.4 said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But he came as a human. Christ has always been fully divine, but he came as a human. He came as one of us. He added to himself flesh. He always had deity. He always was God, but he came as one who was human. And friends, that should amaze us. That should never cease to amaze us. All the gods of all the religions would never think such a thought, but the only God that really matters did think that thought, and he came down and I, I, I hate this paraphrase, the message Bible, the message translation, whatever you want to say, says he moved into the neighborhood. That's exactly what he did. He enfleshed himself. He came in human form. And yet you see there also that he came in heavenly deity. It says literally a son is given to us, given to us. This speaks of his eternal being. This speaks of his glory. It tells of God's gift to us, what, what uh, uh, Lane read from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Notice that this text, though, is quite specific. It's quite clear here. It's, it does not say a child is born, a son is born. No, Isaiah has something a little more specific, the words that came completely true. It says that this is God's gift wrapped in human form. This is God himself coming down. The birth in Bethlehem was not his beginning. Our Jehovah's Witness friends will tell you that somehow Jesus was created along with all creation. But there was a time when Jesus was not but there was never a time when he as the son was not. That should blow your mind a little bit. He never was. He always has been. I remember as a youth pastor, and Pastor Craig and I served at this church a few years ago, several years ago, where they asked, a little sixth grader always asked the question, well, well, well who created God? And, and you could just see that sixth grade, 11, 12-year-old face trying to grasp something that theologians have, have wrestled with for years. And all you could look at her and say is, he's always been. And so it was with this one born. The great mystery of the manger, John Phillips said, is that God should be able to translate deity into humanity and without discarding the deity or distorting the humanity. When Christ came, he was 100% human, 100% divine. He was not your two-in-one conditioner. You know, you got a little conditioner, a little shampoo. That's not how Jesus was. He was distinct in who he was as a human, but he was also distinct in who he was as deity. He was God come down to us. He's amazing in the manner he came. Christian, sometimes you end up coming in manners that you don't think are quite amazing. You just make an appearance and make an entrance. Well, God came and no one really celebrated it except those that he chose to celebrate it. The apostle John would later add, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. There is no other. That's really what life is all about. When you die someday, the only thing that's going to matter is what you did with Jesus here on this earth. That's it. How easily we forget that. How easily we forget that. COVID has overtaken our lives in so many ways. It really has redefined us in so many ways. But don't let the joy of Christ's coming be overtaken by the fear of something. God is greater. Take your precautions. Do what you need to do. 
But at the end of the day, what matters is, is that Christ came, amen, and that he came for us. He was amazing, astounding in the manner he arrived. Secondly, I want you to see that God is awesome in the way, in the means he administrates. This is probably the greatest single verse about Jesus Christ because it tells us four names uh, in Scripture that come about. There's never a concise package like this that, that Christ brings. There's four straight names in kind, of a, in kind of machine gun fashion, boom, 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 and it's just right there for you. Now, granted, there are over 250 names and titles given to Jesus throughout the Scripture, but this is the only time, again, when we see it so right back together. So coupled with the child is born and the son is given is a result nothing less of what we read about last week, that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So I want you to see first off in verse 6, as you have your scripture there, that he is a wise counselor. He's a wise counselor. And you may have a wonderful counselor. It literally reads here, a wonder of a counselor. He is the one who gives us wondrous counsel and unfailing wisdom. And the word wonderful is never used in the scripture of what a person does or, you know, sometimes we say that's a wonderful person or a wonderful man, but only in the scripture in the Bible is it used of God, of who he is and what he has done for us. You know, we live in a day of the, uh, is Oprah still a thing? Oprah, Dr. Phil, Ellen, I don't know who's on day, I don't, we don't have a TV at home, so we watch Peppa Pig and uh, Wild Kratts and PBS, that's what we get on our, our thing, so, but we live in a day where if you have a problem, you go to a counselor. And it's been said a counselor is someone who will help you organize your hang-ups so that you can be unhappy more efficiently. You can be unhappy just with more order in your life. But it was by a counselor that we fell into sin. Think about that. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were told one thing, and if you're a parent, you know, you know the end of the story. Guys, I don't want you to do this one thing. What's your kid going to do? They're going to do the one thing, aren't they? That's exactly what they do. Adam and Eve were told not to do one thing, and Satan comes in the form of a certain serpent. And he gives some psychobabble to Eve, and she got Adam involved in group therapy, and together they plunged the whole world into, into misery, is basically what it was. We were ruined by a counselor. This is not to say counseling's bad. Pastor Nelson is a certified counselor. I love him. Counselors are good. But which counselor are you listening to? 1 Corinthians 1.24 teaches us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's an advisor. He's a friend. He's a confidant. He is the wise counselor who solves my confusion. Look, if you're struggling with something, the Bible says go back to the Scripture. If, if you say God told me and the Scripture says something different, it's not God you're listening to. It's someone else. Be very careful about where you go to. Jesus says he is a wise counselor. But he also says he's a worthy defender of me from conflict. Notice the second word here. And Lane and I discussed this on Thursday in our weekly meeting. But this is mighty God. This is El Gabor. This is literally the hero God. This is literally the warrior God. You kind of go from the doting counselor over here to this, this brave heart, you know, Mel Gibson, mid-90s kind of Scottish thing going on over here. How does that work? Well, it's something that is, is often uh, debated among scholars. Is he really the mighty God? Could God really be this warrior God? I mean, surely this is hyperbole. It's just exaggeration. But taken with the book itself, this is an affirmation that God is who he said he is. That God is going to set all things right. I don't know about you, but if we ever go to war, I don't want to be, I don't want some doting person leading the army. Yeah, just don't hurt anybody. You know, if they come up to you, just give them a hug. They'll go away eventually. You know, that's not what you want in wartime. You want someone who's going to lead the charge. He's going to look them in the whites of the eyes and say, go after them, go get them. And mighty God 
conjures up warfare and battleground. Because this warrior God is the captain of our salvation. He would take the field at Calvary and engage the titan forces of sin, of Satan, of death, of hell, and the grave, and the tomb. And he looked it square in the eye and he said, away with you, and boom, it went away. He is our mighty God. His wisdom led him to that point, but on the cross, he crushed it, just like a general would crush an opposing army. He is the mighty God. And as Pastor Nelson read at the uh, beginning, at someday that will happen. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess, and every tongue, whether on the earth or under the earth, will say, El Gabor, you are the mighty God. And I'm going to pick on Pastor Nelson a little bit. If you've heard Pastor Nelson pray over the years, he always starts his prayer with mighty God, and he always ends his prayer with mighty God in Jesus' name. You may not notice that, but he does. And I appreciate that about him because he's reminding us that God is mighty. God is not a wimpy, whimsical God that looks like an American Christian church. He is a God that is far above us and able to take us. He's a wise counselor. He's a mighty God. But notice thirdly here, he's also, and this may confuse you. Did you notice this? Wait, wait, Pastor, Jesus is a son. How can it say this next? He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. But then thirdly, he's everlasting father. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, Pastor, does that mean that, that, that even in the Old Testament, they didn't believe in the Trinity? No, let me be very, very clear here. Everlasting Father is, a show, is someone of compassion. Mighty God is, 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 is the warrior. Wisdom is the counselor. But Everlasting Father here is descriptive of one who acts like a father. Do you remember when Jesus taught, it often said, do you remember what it said? He'd look at the crowd. And what happened with him? He'd look at the crowd, and he would have compassion on them. He would see them as like sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember that? It's exactly what's happening here. He is the father of eternity, is the God the Father, who's eternally a father and the source of all things. But Jesus here is given the title Everlasting Father. There's one God. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are not mixed. They don't mix together. They're equally distinct. The Father is the Father. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. Is your mind going like this yet? It should. But be careful here. Liberal scholars will look at this and say, well, this can't be about Jesus because he's not the Father, he's the Son. Exactly. It's a title. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not the person he is. It is the title of him. Here is the child is also a father, fatherly in his love and care, fatherly in his goodness and compassion, and this is his character. This is what he's out to do. He acts towards us as a father, a good father, a perfect father. There's a song on the radio about that. He's a good, good father, that sort of thing. He is. Remember Jesus wept over Jerusalem? Do you remember that? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned my messengers. He wept for him. But this father is always there. He's never too busy. Um, we had to talk to our kids the other night about a busy signal because they tried to call grandma on her landline phone and they got the beep, beep. You know, y'all forgot about that already? You know what that is? And the cell phone days, it just goes the voicemail, right? You don't get the busy signal. But our father cares so much about us. He says, at any time, cast all your cares on me because I care for you. We have a wise counselor, a mighty God, and a compassionate, everlasting Father, not Father God, not heavenly, the Heavenly Father, but the Son who takes on the characteristics of a Father and how He cares for us. 
Look at the last title he's given there. He's also a wonderful comforter. And look, and you see that there as the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. In Luke 2.14, the angels sang to the shepherds of one who would bring peace on earth. And here in Isaiah, we're told that he is the one, he is the supreme one, the peaceful one. He's the one who, that we see that the warrior's boot and garment in verse 5 will be used for burning and fuel for the fire. This is the one that is bringing peace, not just peace to make you feel better in a moment, but peace between God and man. You know, the U, uh, some of y'all have the, the version of the Bible, I'm holding my phone up for those outside, uh, called the U version, I think it is, of the Bible, very popular. They put out their most famous verses of this last year, and wouldn't you know, one of the verses that stood out the most was Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 4, am I, uh, verse 4, verse 8, excuse me, which says, um, and, and the peace of God will be with you, the peace that transcends all understanding. That's the peace we're talking about here. The peace that he gives is a peace that only God can give. Philippians 4, 7, excuse me, it tells us he gives us the peace of God. He tells us that he gives peace with God. Peace between God and man. Peace between man and man. Peace within man. Peace without and peace within. Peace in the present, peace in the past, peace in the future. He is the God who does this. How did he do it? He died on the cross. That's exactly how he did it. Because on that cross, when he died, he said those famous words, John 19, 30. He said, it is finished. And that's it. It's done. Well, pastor, if it's that simple, why do so many people miss this? I don't know, except the scripture says that there will be many who don't want anything to do with this. So he was wise in his counsel. He's mighty in his attack on sin. He's also the everlasting father. He cares for us even when we do sin, but he's also the one that says, you know what, Romans 5.1, he gives us the peace of God. That is our savior. Muhammad didn't do that. Buddha didn't do that. Confucius didn't do that. Zoroaster didn't do that. President fill-in-the-blank, whoever it was the last 220 years, has not done that. Only Jesus Christ has done that. Isn't he an awesome God? That is our God. He's awesome in the means he administrates. He's astounding in the manner he arrives. I want you to see lastly in verse 6 and 7 that God is amazing in the tomorrows he authorizes. He's amazing in the tomorrows he authorizes. And you'll pick this up in the kind of the... Uh, Start of verse 7. Let's read that together if you got your scripture. It says, And of the increase and of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our God is a promise-keeping God. I know. I, I, know. I, I put in my notes I wouldn't go here, but I'm going here. We know that two months ago, every politician under the sun said, read my lips and fill in the blank promise. And how many of those promises are probably going to come true? Yeah, a few. We'll, get, we'll grant him some grace. But what God promises, he fulfills. What God says he's going to do, he's going to do it. And so in Luke 31 and 32, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's it. That's all there is. And what does this tell us? It tells us that he is going to rule completely, that he will rule universally. He will rule unendingly. He will rule unparalleled. There will be no end to it. He will literally no, have no one vote him out. 
He doesn't have term limits. He doesn't get voted out after four years or eight years or 20 years. Our God reigns forever, and that's because he's the only one who can do that. Because I bet if we had a poll every other year, depending on who, uh, is, uh, who, who we believe in, we'd vote out our God every other year if we didn't like what he answered us with. Well, God, you didn't answer my prayer the way I want you to. Therefore, oh, nope, not going to read. It's kind of like when you vote for the judges. No one ever knows what to do with the votes for the judges. 98% of us don't. We just click the box and say, yes, 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 yes. But friends, if you put a, a ballot before someone and say, would you like the God of the Bible or would you like someone else? Most people are going to vote him out every single time if they could. But our God reigns and he rules completely. I want you to notice verse 7, he, he not only will rule completely, he will rule eternally. There will be no end of time and space. It says there will be no end. It will be forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Hope will burst forth out of hopelessness and it will keep growing. Peace will burst forth out of hopelessness and keep growing. And justice will burst forth out of, out of injustice and keep growing. And on David's throne, it, it, this is looking forward to Revelation 20, and, and on that throne he will sit forever. Jesus didn't get added to, something added to him or, or bestowed upon him in the sense of, uh, as Mormons believe, he's not a God from another world, from another God, from another God. Jesus always has been, and he will rule completely, and he will rule eternally. And that's our God. So often our view of God is so low, friends. And I say that as a pastor, that we forget that our God really is in charge. I don't want to take your, your thoughts away from this world, but, but you have to know this. COVID has a due date. AIDS has a due date. Cancer has a due date. Broken relationships has a due date. Everything in this world that is wrong, that is sinful, that is out of balance, out of place, out of whack, has a due date. Because our God rules completely, and he rules eternally. And that's where we set our hope. This doesn't mean we become disengaged from the world. doesn't mean that we just throw in the towel and go in our holy huddle somewhere, mask or no mask, whatever you do. It just means that our focus, we work here, but we keep our eye up here. We're like Nehemiah and Ezra, who when they were rebuilding the wall, had a sword in one hand, and they had a trowel or, or a spade or whatever they did to rebuild that wall in the other. We work for God here, but we also get ready to fight the battles for him here by sharing the gospel of peace wherever we can with whomever we will. He will rule completely. He will rule eternally. And I want you to see the last little point here, verse 7. He will rule powerfully. And this is where that phrase comes in at the very end. It may confuse you. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, but nothing less of God could bring this to pass. People are zealous for a lot of things. There's a lot of zealous Chiefs fans who, who uh, broke all protocols to go down to, to Miami here for an hour kickoff from now to watch a, a bunch of grown men tackle each other. Isn't that kind of silly anyway? A bunch of grown men are just going around chasing a ball. It's kind of a weird thing, I know. I'm being silly. You can't tell. But the things we focus on. But here, it is God's jealous passion to establish the rule and reign of his son so that he will be honored, he will be vindicated, and he alone will be worshipped. You know, Oprah several years ago, and I've shared this before, but Oprah several years ago, uh, for those young people who don't know who Oprah is, just look her up. She... Uh, uh, she's a household name. But Oprah, several years ago, said, I stopped being a Christian because I heard this phrase from my pastor when I was a little girl growing up in Alabama. God is a jealous God. And she couldn't wrap her mind around that phrase. And because of that, as an excuse of that, rather, 
frankly said, she turned away from God. Friends, but in heaven, there's no confusion in what this is all about. God is zealous. He's jealous. He's passionate. He's focused like a, like a scope on a deer. He is ready to go after the glory of his name. And when he comes back, it's not going to be about this church or that church or this Christian or that Christian. It is about his kingdom. It's coming, and he will rule it powerfully. That's it. Why is God jealous for his name? Because he knows that only his name matters at the end of the day. He knows that our little kingdoms that we make down here and our little plans we make down here are just going to be like a kid's sandcastle when the tide comes up. It's just going to wash it all away. Through all time, God is burning with passion, zeal, and holy jealousy that his son, in whom he delights, would receive the power, the glory, and the honor, and the majesty. That's what the angels sing about in Revelation. So great is God's love for his son that you can be certain of this, that he will rule completely, eternally, and powerfully. He guarantees it, and that should settle it right there. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in England uh, of days gone by, said it this way. He said, quote, ultimately, nothing matters but what we think of him. Ultimately, nothing matters but what we think of him. This Christmas season is your thoughts, are your thoughts of God as they are here in the scriptures? Do you see God as he really is, as he truly is, as he wants you to see him? Friends, he is our marvelous God who came. He's majestic in who he is. He's amazing in how he administrates. So where does this leave us as we close off today? I think it leaves us with just one thought. I talked to Lane about this uh, on Thursday, and as a pastor, sometimes we spend so much time trying to figure out the most practical thing to give you in your life from the Scripture, and we need to do that. We should read the Scripture, we should tell you about the Scripture, and we we should give you practical things. But friends, this is one of those sermons that as a pastor, and this isn't a, a, a cop-out, this is sometimes where we just want you to stop and think, have you really considered who this God is? Have you really been challenged lately about how big he is? About how you can't box him in? About how he's always working in ways you cannot see? John Piper said God's doing 10,000 things in a second when you think one second about him. God's amazing. As we close before I pray, I just want you to just take some time today. My wife is out of town this weekend, socially distant, and her mom's surprise 70th birthday in Oklahoma. I've got three kids, but they have a rest time. I plan to do this at some point today. But I just want you to stop and think, God, have I really just taken you for granted? Or have I really considered about how amazingly big you are? Guys, guys, we're living in a pandemic. We're living in a time where the political unrest is greater than it's ever been. We live in a time where churches are being decimated in numbers and giving and baptisms and all across the board. Okay, I don't like it in all the ways you don't like it. But I can tell you one thing. If this season should do anything for us, this holiday season, may our eyes be more up than they are horizontal. And if that's just something you need to do this afternoon, to take a quiet moment and say, God, forgive me for making you more like us and not making you about who you really are. Our God is an awesome God and he reigns forevermore. Will you pray with me? Let's close as we end out today, and I'll invite Pastor Craig and crew to come up as we do. Father God, thank you so much for our time together. Father, as we look at this passage, we know that you are the God who does all amazing things, and you are the God who has, who has enabled us to continue to grow and be a part of everything that we have and part of everything of who we are. So, Father, as we do these things, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that simple message. 
Father, if we have done anything here today, we have, we, we have celebrated the baptism of our brother uh, in Christ, Timothy Wardlow. We, we've tried to sing your praises and, and read your scripture and preach your word and call sinners to Christ. Father, in, in just in these things, would you be lifted high? And I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice today that, Lord, you would encourage us with the reality that you are bigger and, and better and more um, awesome and amazing than anything we could ever imagine. Father, we don't want to be so uh, pie in the sky that we don't live in this world. You've called us to live in this world. But in the midst of that, let us be like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And Father, may our eyes look even wider to the holy, holy, holy God. But Lord, thank you that you condescended, you came down, you tabernacled among us, you moved in the neighborhood, whatever you want to call it, to give us life and life eternal. Father, we celebrate that now, and we pray, especially this day, that our thoughts of you would be even better and bigger than they are, because ultimately, as Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, nothing matters but what we think of you. Father, we praise you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.